What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Lionel Barber, former editor of the Financial Times and author of the new book, The Powerful and the Damned, Private Diaries in Turbulent Times. And in conversation with Manveen Rana, senior investigative journalist at The Times and host of the excellent Stories of Our Times podcast, they took us through the defining moments and characters during Barber's time as editor, from what it was like to interview Vladimir Putin about the rise of populism to what Angela Merkel really thought of Brexit and former British Prime Minister David Cameron. It's a fascinating and far-ranging discussion, touching on topics like austerity, the recent US election, and how to run a newspaper in the digital age. If you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Lionel Barber's excellent book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Manveen Rana, and I'm delighted to introduce our guest tonight, Lionel Barber former editor of the Financial Times from 2005 until just the start of this year, January 2020. In that time, he helped transform the FT from a newspaper publisher into a multi-channel global news organisation. That perch also gave him a front row seat on some of the biggest events in recent history, and he's met and interviewed many of the key players who've shaped it. From titans of industry to world leaders, he's interviewed, amongst many others, the US President Barack Obama, Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, President of Iran Hassan Rouhani, and the Russian President Vladimir Putin. He now serves on the Board of Trustees at the Tate and the Carnegie Corporation of New York. He's also the author of this new book, The Powerful and the Damned, Private Diaries in Turbulent Times, and it's a rollicking read. I highly recommend it. And Lionel, I, I feel like it would be remiss of me not to begin with the American election, one of the biggest uh, his, historic news stories for a while. Uh, and it's not quite over. President Trump and some members of his administration are clearly refusing to accept the result and they're uh, sort of pointing to allegations of fraud. What have you made of the election and of the way the media has covered those allegations? I mean, first of all, it's great to be with you and the Intelligence Squared uh, audience that I can't see, but I can feel. Uh, uh, So the election, the good news is that more Americans voted than at any time in a century. Uh, 70 million or so voted for Donald Trump, but many more, four to five million more voted for Joe Biden, the comeback kid. Now, I think that Joe Biden won. There's no evidence of fraud and that Donald Trump, his 
strategy, if you can call it that, is actually very weak in two respects, both on defense and offense. The defense is there was voter fraud. We're going to the courts. Actually, there's been no evidence and the judges have rejected the allegations. And second, the offense, which is to cast doubt on the outcome and essentially cast doubt on the legitimacy, just it, it hasn't worked. And I think the most telling point was when you heard, we need a Jim Baker. That's the former White House Chief of Staff, Secretary of State, that I actually interviewed in the book. We talk about Baker, one of, the man who ruled Washington. And they ended up not with Jim Baker because he said, look, we've got to count the votes, but it seems a clear outcome. But they ended up with Rudy Giuliani. That's definitely third choice. So I think there will be a transition. Maybe the worrying thing, just the thing to keep your mind on, uh, uh, what is going on is Donald Trump, the president, cleaned out the civilian leadership of the Pentagon this week, sacked the defense secretary, and he's putting other people in areas of government. So this is a sort of, you know, I think it's more a smokescreen than a coup, but it does need watching. And in terms of the media response, you know, we've sort of seen channels like Fox, who've always been very loyal, suddenly sort of shutting down feeds for the president speaking and, and some of his representatives speaking. What did you make of that media response? And is it, is it too little too late? Or is, is that how you handle a situation like this? Well, I think that the media in America is making amends for the mistakes that they made in 2016, where they gave Donald Trump enormous airtime. You will remember it wasn't just Fox News, but the boss then, Les Moonves of CBS, said, I don't know whether, you know, Trump may not be good for America, but he's great for our ratings. And they gave Donald Trump a free pass. The media, the networks particularly, saw him as a theatrical figure. He was, he was, he was a great performer, but they, they, they should have done a better job at contextualizing and right. So I think now... They've done, maybe they've pulled the trigger a bit too soon by cutting him off and appearing to censor him. Personally, I would have let the spool, I would have let the tape run and then come in for 10 minutes and just point it out, point out all the untruths that he told. So you are seeing something quite unprecedented and it shows you the degree of polarization in America at the moment. And you mentioned you know, this was a, uh, an election where we saw more people voting than ever before. 70 million of them did vote for Donald Trump. Were you sort of surprised by, by the closeness of that result? And, and does it just show us that perhaps the, the press and the pollsters haven't quite learned the, learned the lesson of 2016? What I was surprised by was when I was on a call with a top pollster, who I, he better remain nameless, but just let's say... <laughs> He was You had to end his career. Well, he was in California. He's a very senior bowler and seasoned bolster. But I couldn't believe how he was saying, well, we don't need to talk about the election. This was three weeks before because it's going to be a landslide. Let's talk about the Senate. And I never, ever thought that there would be a landslide for Joe Biden. And I think the pollsters yet again got it wrong because they they just think that this old fashioned view of of ringing people up and thinking they're going to tell you the truth. I mean, the whole point, there are lots and lots of shy Trump voters and men, Trump has a base. That base has been unbelievably loyal, uh, almost to a fault. 
So I, I thought it would be harder. Remember, very few presidents in modern times are unseated after one term. We know Jimmy Carter. We know George H.W. Bush. I covered that election. And Gerald Ford, well, he was unseated largely because uh, he pardoned Richard Nixon. So, you know, all, the odds were actually in favor of Donald Trump. And maybe if it hadn't been for COVID and the shock to the economy, he might well have won a second term. We could very easily talk about the American election for the whole of the hour. But um, turning, turning to the book, you begin with a fateful lunch where you're appointed editor of the FT, which, as you quite rightly say, is, is the job of a lifetime. But at the time, the paper had lost £60 million in three years. What was going wrong? Well, it wasn't a fateful lunch. It was a fantastic lunch. I got just <laughs> given the best job in world journalism. And, you know, I'd watched uh, from New York... The, you know, the FT lost its way a bit. It sort of became a bit too general news. They wanted to be Britain's business newspaper. And, I, you know, I kind of think the, the moment for me that I kind of took a deep breath was when we decided to produce a daily sports page. And I love, you know, I'm a very competitive cricketer and rugby player. I, I was. And I thought, well, you know, we're not, that's not our comparative advantage. So I think we just needed to refocus on the core mission and, you know, raise prices because we weren't, we couldn't play in the same sandpit as Rupert Murdoch's The Times at one pound. We were worth more than a pound. So when I came back and I got the job, I just said, you know what, we're going for a return to the gold standard. That's how I describe it, that speech to the newsroom. I think a few people were a bit glum because they thought I was talking about economics. Actually, I was talking about news and focus on business and financial news. And the second big thing was to say, we're the paper of globalization. We're going to be a global paper. We've got 100 foreign correspondents. We can do it. And we did. And look, you know, I tell the story. It's not the main story in the book. But we got to a one, we doubled the readership, one million plus paying readers. Not bad. And you, when you when you came in, you had you had told executives, and I thought this was very intriguing, but you told executives that the editor before you wasn't quite up to the job, which clearly piles pressure on you as the new man in, in, in his shoes. How did you go about changing from, you know, I know at one point you describe yourself as old media, desperately trying to be new media. How did you transform the FT and, and what it was setting out to do? Well, Manveen, seeing as we're amongst friends, I think I can tell you, <laughs> you know, I, I do reveal a bit of that story, quite a lot of the story. And you know, just so you don't think that I come across as Iago, I, I, I was loyal. I would never have suggested that. <laughs> I, I stayed, I worked with Andrew, Andrew Gowers. You know, I was in charge of America and, you know, I supported the team. Christopher Freeland was the deputy editor, now very famous in Canada. She's probably going to be in the next prime minister. I supported that team, even when they were making mistakes. But, you know, at one point I just thought, you know what? Somebody needs to say something. So I did say something to the proprietor. And when I got the job and I didn't ask for the job, crucially, I said, you've got to make a change. I don't care who it is. You've got to make a change. You know what? I was 50. I'd been a foreign correspondent. I knew I was a pretty good foreign correspondent. And I got the job. So I had a mandate. And you can't believe how important that is if you're a leader, because you think, you know what? This is my shot. And if I screw up, then I'm going to have to leave. 
But a lot of people say, and I don't want to sound arrogant, but a lot of people say, weren't you worried? Weren't you fearful? I took serious advice from Ben Bradley, from Stan O'Neill at Merrill Lynch on how to cuss cot, from Howard String at Sony. This is all in the book. You know, how do you communicate? And I just came out with a clear message. A few phrases, you know, we're in a digital revolution. Nobody had a recipe the absolute answers to everything, but I set a direction, I set standards, and I made the changes, and we were on our way. And then the global financial crisis came, and that was the biggest story in two generations. And hey, we're off to the races. Well, let's move on to that because you're right. You know, of all the the periods you could have been editor of the FT, that this has been a pretty remarkable one. Um, when in 2008 we sort of saw the collapse of, of Lehman Brothers. How much of a shock was that inside the newsroom? Did, did, you, did you feel like you'd, you'd missed the story? No, we, we got some of the story. We got a piece of it. We got a piece of the jigsaw. And, you know, I give credit to, in the book to Gillian Tett. She understood that actually the risk was building up in the system and uh, alluded to it on many occasions. She also raised questions with others in the markets team that I'd bolstered at the time about the credit ratings agencies and their flawed business model. They were too close to the banks. But you know what? Loads of other people missed the story. The Bank of England missed the story. The Treasury missed the story. The IMF missed the story. We got a piece of it, but we didn't connect the dots. And if I have some Chinese self-criticism maybe to make it, I didn't put enough of Gillian and others on the front page. It was in the paper. But lastly... You know what it was like, and I described this in the book, that September, it literally felt the world financial system was melting down in front of our eyes, a bit like a chocolate cake that had got overheated. And it was pretty scary. And I spoke to some of the principals, like Steve Schwartzman, you know, I'm not a name dropper, really. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, they were worried, too. And it was really scary. And we know what the consequences were. The system was rescued through extraordinary action by the central banks, got a concentration of financial power, plus a huge political legacy, which was the rise of national populism. I mean, what did you make of the political response to the crisis? What did you make of austerity? Well, I think, and I say this in the book, that, you know, I understand why it was necessary to rein in the deficit, which was, at that time, with a new coalition government, it was more than 10% of GDP. I mean, it was huge. So at some point, you needed to deal with this. And there, was a, there, was, there were wor- real worries. And I was just, I, I did speak to George Osborne at the time. And, our, our, you know, an economics editor and political team did as well. And, you know, there were, there were worries that the politi- this new coalition government might fall. It could break apart. So we did support the government. What I would say, and I said in the book, is that we underestimated the damage to local government, to public services of austerity. And some commentators, I mean, I always said, you know, you can write what you like in the columns, but Martin Wolf and Philip Stevens were much more critical because the accent had fallen on public spending cuts as opposed to tax rises. It was 80-20. And I think in retrospect, that was probably slightly wrong. I mean, do you think with with that crisis and the rise of populism that followed, have we started to see 
the sort of the the fractures between free market capitalism is it increasing at odds with liberal democracy no not not entirely i mean the the, the legacy of the financial crisis was actually clear i would say by 2010-11 and you've got to remember this this wasn't just the financial crisis this was a crisis of globalization this was saying the model that we've had with free movement of capital labor goods services that that model had almost run its course and rem- i remember you know everybody at the beginning in the 90s when the world economy was opening up huge benefits to china and india but everybody was focused on goods what happens if you know these goods come in and undercut our manufacturing sector actually the irony and i say this in the book was it was labor free movement that mattered much more because immigration was suddenly became a very big issue and probably you know that's what politicians needed to focus on a bit more and also by the way financial services total liberalization i mean that was one of the reasons that we led into the financial crisis do you think we've learned the lessons of the financial crisis sufficiently well i think we've certainly learned in one respect which is heavily regulating the banks and we return them almost into utilities they're not getting the same returns that they did the risk has been limited but but i want to come back manveen to your earlier question which i wasn't seeking to evade um <laughs> but you you ask an incredibly important and it's a huge question which is has the model of capitalism that we've come to know which is based largely around not just the profit motive but shareholder value that it's all about creating shareholder value is that lopsided should we not take into other other factors into consideration like climate change like how you know we we treat our workers diversity all these things to make companies really enlightened as well as profitable and i think we've got a bit of a way to go which is why at the end of my tenure you know i did support with you know some input this notion of a new agenda for capitalism and i summed it up by quoting macaulay i think it is macaulay the great historian and politician which is you need to reform in order to preserve i think that's about where i stand as a if you know if you ask me about my political pr- principles that's probably where i am i'm i'm a i'm not a burke i'm a burkean how's that <laughs> very nice and and just talking about that that rise of populism that followed we can't not talk about brexit and and the rise of trump you describe in the book a meeting you had with angela merkel back in 2008 and it sort of seems to expose some of the early signs of a breakdown of relations T- tell us a bit about that in terms of the relations with business and finance or between britain and europe you mean britain and europe britain and europe uh, okay so i know now what you you're referring to yeah i mean merkel at that point had been and it's very funny there's a sort of slight symmetry in our i mean she's obviously much more important and powerful than i was but 3 weeks after i became editor she became chancellor of germany and i did interview her three times i referred to two of those interviews and at the beginning you know 2008 we talked about the financial crisis and you know she was a little bit stiff she was still feeling her way 
And I wanted to know what she thought about David Cameron and Gordon Brown. But I didn't quite have the nerve to ask her during the interview. And we stood there having our photographs taken. And she said, how do you think Gordon Brown is doing? Now, this was in German, of course, natürlich. And I said, nicht so gut, which is, you know, as you might imagine, not so good. And she said, why? And I said, well, because he finds it hard to take decisions. And she said, what? He's really effective in council, in the European Council. And I said, well, not so much in Britain. And then she said, after a dramatic pause, dann kommt Cameron, which is, well, that means Cameron's coming to power. And I said, may well be, yes. And then she unloaded about Cameron leaving the European People's Party, centre-right grouping, and how he was anti-Europe. And then there was the classic Merkel put-down, which she does very well, and by the way, is a little bit scary, where she says... <laughs> hmm. She does have, a, by the way, a wicked sense of humour as well, but she looked at me and she just said, well, I'm not going to talk to him seriously about anything, maybe about environmental policy. I, you know the Arctic, you know, huskies. She'd seen that ad. I'll talk to him. He's pretending to be green. I'll talk to him about that. But it was a real put down. And by the way, a huge insight for me, because I'd been saying to the Tories at the time, you really shouldn't be leaving the EPP. You're going to be left out in Europe. And she said, later when I saw her earlier this year for my last ever interview, she said... Well, that was the moment that I knew that they were, you know, on their way out because they shouldn't have done that. The writing was on the wall. The writing was on the wall. And in terms of the British side of Brexit, do do you buy into the narrative that this was a result of a backlash against the elite for ignoring, you know, the, the left behind? You know, is that where this has come from? It has something to do with that. But I just want to say, because I'd say it in the book, is... You know, I have a real problem with uh, with David Cameron's cavalier attitude to calling a referendum and general referendums in, in, you know, as a principle, because we live in a representative democracy. He called three referendums in six years. And he'd obviously never been to Las Vegas because he doesn't have a first clue about odds. He got warned in Scotland I mean, it was 55-45 in the end. He had a vote on the alternative vote on proportional representation. Well, it was kind of proportional representation in 2011. And then he called Brexit without having any idea how he was going to fight that campaign. He thought schmoozing with a few editors would be, you know, the way to do it. And then, you know, it was a disaster. It was a terrible campaign. And he never wanted to make a political speech in favour of joining. So I just think that was a major, major problem. And he was outfought by Dominic Cummings and the others. Now, was there a constituency of alienated voters in Britain that never really believed in the European Union and was sort of ready to vote against? Yes. Was immigration a problem? Yes. Uncontrolled immigration? Um, in certain areas, some, by the way, where they weren't even affected. Yes, but it was still a poorly fought campaign and I fault David Cameron for, for calling it. I mean, the FD's stance on Brexit is known by all. You're obviously sort of very anti. Looking at it now with sort of um, a, 
a little bit more distance, I suppose. How do you think it'll be judged in 10 years' time? Well, I think it was a mistake. I think it was an act of self-harm. I wrote that editorial in 2016. And I think the economic consequences, look, this is a great country. It's a, it's a strong, they've got lots and lots of positives. So I am not running down Britain. Um, Michael Portillo basically called me a traitor on television as much as that, said I should be, you know, ashamed of myself, he said, a few minutes to midnight. And, you know, we pointed out the economic consequences of joining and the deal we're going to get, if we do get a deal, which I think we will, will be skinny, bare bones and inferior to what we have, which is privileged access to the single market. And we had our cake and we were eating it rather happily in economic terms. And I make no bones about pointing out the risks. And I think we've marginalised ourselves politically. So, you know, of course we can deal with it. A bit like, you know, waking up in the morning and going straight into a cold shower. But if you've got it running a slight temperature, which we are at the moment, I wouldn't actually recommend, sorry for this extended metaphor, taking a very long cold shower. And that's what it's going to be. I mean, you mentioned Michael Portillo there. It's clearly been a divisive issue across the country and beyond. Did it lose you friends? In terms of our stand on on Europe, you know, I never, ever cared about friends. If you're the editor of a newspaper like The Fan, if you're an editor in general, you don't have friends. You can have acquaintances, (laughs) but you don't have... It's completely the wrong way, which is why... This diary, yes, I met all these important people and I talked to them. But, you know, I was not friends with them. You can't afford to be friends. And if you're actually running a paper, you have to stand by principles. And the principles were we were a pro-European paper and we believed in the European Union and membership. And we were going to stand by that and sod the friendships. You see, that's really interesting because, you know, one of the criticisms of the book is that you were sort of too cosy with with people in power. Is that a problem, though, with sort of, you know, access journalism at the moment? If you want to know what's happening to get the inside track on politics, you have to be friendly with people in power. And that makes it harder for you to write objectively about them. Well, first of all, access, as you know, is double edged. So you get the access, you could be there either controlled or compromised. And so you have to go in eyes wide open. Frankly, as an editor, first of all, You know, I thought it was better to go out and actually see people and use the FT's privilege and my position to stage big interviews, tough interviews, rather than sitting in my office staring at a computer screen. I mean, the way I could go out and work with reporters in the field. And, you know, I'm not I think most people at the FT and most people who have been interviewed by me would realize that I'm not a pussycat. And, you know, I went in with wise wide open. I was not compromised. And I felt that it was, in, you know, the, the best way of going about the job. And just in technical terms, just as a last point, and it, you, you'd appreciate this as a journalist, every piece I wrote, and I didn't just, by the way, spend when I was going on these trips. You know, I was in favelas in Sao Paulo. I was in Kabira and Kenya. And I was in Mumbai in the slums for five hours. I didn't just hang around in five-star hotels. I saw, you know, a wide range of people. But when I wrote, they, I, the pieces were edited. I never, I stood back from the editing process and it was rigorous. 
And I'm, I'm, you know, I basically feel pretty good about where I am and what we did. I'd like to talk to you about sort of the big geopolitical movements we've seen recently. I mean, you wrote about... You wrote about a visit to Beijing in which, you know, your Twitter account was blocked. You could barely access email. What did you learn about modern China? Well, I made, I can't, I mean, they told me actually at one point, you have made eight trips to China, you know, as editor, you know, and therefore you are no China. And, you know, we went through, uh, uh, I met a lot of people in, in power and the big business. So here's what I think. First of all, modern China It's an extraordinary economic success story. They benefited from being part of the World Trade Organization in that period of globalization. They took advantage of the rules as well. But they also brought tens, hundreds of millions out of poverty. And the great shift from the countryside to the, to the cities and urbanization is, is extraordinary. Second, things changed under the new emperor. When I, I remember that first trip in 2013, within weeks of, of Xi Jinping taking over, you knew some, there was a new force in town. And that anti-corruption anti campaign and the restoration of the party, I mean, it's scary. He's broken the tradition or he's about to break of two terms only. So we have a new type of leadership, which is a pretty scary leadership in, in China. Set third, China sees it as particularly under Xi as it's playing a historical role. The Middle Kingdom is back. It is a world, it is the superpower in waiting. And therefore, it's going to be a more formidable competitor, not just in the region, but also in the rest of the world, where China is making its presence felt, not even just in Africa, but also in Europe, in places like Serbia. They are using their money to gain it, to buy influence, to gain influence, And they are being a world player. They've got a ways to go. America is, is, is superior still, but the gap is closing. And that is the new story for our next few decades, America and China. Is it something we should be worried about here? Is it something we should worry about in terms of in investment in infrastructure and how, how much we let the Chinese come in and, and invest in sort of big network capabilities? Well, I think it's, that decision has already been made in that the government's banned Huawei, which is the 5G champion. And I describe in the book, by the way, it's an extraordinary story, meeting the founder of Huawei in Shenzhen. It's a rare, plug in the book again, but it is, it's a, a very, very rare on the record interview where, uh, with Ren Shenfei in uh, 2011 in Shenzhen. So I think that we, we do need Chinese investment. But in areas of critical national security, like 5G, I think you have to have eyes wide open and make sure that we're not compromised. The fact is, of course, which is not mentioned enough, is there wasn't really an alternative because um, Huawei had obliterated the competition 10 years before. So, you know, the story of the next five years, it's already happening, is that countries are going to be increasingly put under pressure to choose between America and China on these investments. And you're right, that, that will be the story of probably the next few decades, at least, that competition between America and China. Are some politicians right to view China as an existential threat to the West, or is it something we have to learn to, to work with? Uh, existential threat 
um, sounds like the Soviet Union of the Cold War, which had nuclear weapons pointed at our various capitals, troops and tanks massed in the eastern reaches, uh, the Fulda Gap, you remember that? I don't think China is like that. I think actually China operates incrementally. And what they do is they sense out weakness. We haven't talked about Putin, which is the, who is the great exploiter of weakness. But China will test. And then if you retreat, and we saw this on coverage, you know, they were constantly pressing, pressing, pressing. And if you gave any ground, that was it. They'd take it. And so I see that, them testing all the time. And they've also clearly violated intellectual property. They've got massive spy. I'm not saying the Americans don't do it either. So I see it not as an existential threat, but as a systemic challenge. And by the way, the last point is obviously, you know, on liberal democracy, we've got to defend it. We've got to defend it. This is not something you take for granted. Well, you've mentioned the Cold War there and Vladimir Putin. What about Russia? What about Russia's place as a, as a global power? And tell us about your meeting with him. Well, I, I met him. This was the third one. I've waited five years just so people don't think that, you know, you ring the Kremlin and, oh, I'd like an interview. It doesn't work like that. I mean, this was took a long time. And finally, he agreed. And he is the master of destabilization. He's the person he's con- he's like a he you know, he does judo. He's constantly trying to put you off guard. And when he looks at you, it's a little scary. I mean, he will look with that slightly watery eyes. He'll just look straight through you. He's completely cold-blooded. So I did a lot, and I describe in the diaries, how to prepare for the interview with Putin. This was the big interview in the Kremlin, in the cabinet room, with the czars, the statues of the czars there. You know, he kept us waiting for nearly four hours. You know, and we had to stand because the bodyguards with no neck and sausage fingers, they took the seats. So we, we didn't have any seats to sit down on, Henry Foy and me, the Moscow Bureau Chief. And finally we came in. And the one piece of advice, and I, I, I talked to my American friends who'd, you know, spent time with Putin. They said, you know, treat him with respect. Don't go for him because he'll just clam up. So when people talk about, oh, you cozying up to him, no. That was the best way of getting him just not to feel that this was this was a conversation. And at one point, he, you know, he described me as a historian, which I thought was, you know, very exaggerated. But, you know, eventually we lured him in or I lured him because I got the question, which is, you know, which really riled him. And you can tell when he's riled. And, and the question was, you know, if you think about national populism, that's populism in America? And he goes, yes. Populism in Spain, populism in France, in Germany. He's going, yes. And I said, well, when, how long is it going to be before it comes to Russia? And, you know, you always know with Putin when you've got him because he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he lashes out. And he lashed, lashed out against, you know, it's the end of liberalism. It's the end of the liberal idea. And, you know, you people are degenerate in effect because you tolerate you know, sexuality, gays, all this. And it was just, I couldn't believe it. And we had our story. So that's my interview technique. I'm sure you've got a better one, Manveen. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm taking notes. I mean, it is fascinating. You have sort of met some of the biggest figures on the global stage. And, you know, with both Putin and Merkel, you sort of do describe them as slightly terrifying. 
Who who were you most impressed by? Well, I think the in one respect, Kagami was really impressive. And Kagami is a bit scary because what he does is he whispered. And by the way, that was three and a half hours in his presidential office with David Pilling, the Africa editor, because it was often with these interviews, it wasn't just me. And he he whispers. So you have to crane forward. You find yourself craning forward. And at that point, your neck is beginning to hurt. And then your backside is really, really sore because, you know, his first answer has gone on for 45 minutes. But then you remember the history. I mean, yes, he's probably been responsible for murders, or at least indirectly. But his country, Rwanda, was torn apart in 1995. A million people died of genocide. And now, you know, there's a semblance, there's order it's clean, it's growing, and, you know, quite a few African countries are jealous. So in a funny way, I found him rather impressive. We haven't talked about Mohammed bin Salman, the strongman of Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure I was so impressed, but he was definitely, you know, he was the coming man. And that's what this book is about, is explaining how power works and how power is exercised. But I think overall, probably the most impressive person I met was Jim Baker, the Secretary of State, Treasury Secretary, White House Chief of Staff, just because he got so much done. He was a positive force for good. He made the system. He showed how it worked in Washington. I could talk to you about some of these characters for hours, but we are going to have to move on to the questions, I fear, because we've got lots of them. Starting with Rod Pearson, who asks, who is going to pay for the chances largesse to deal with COVID? Well, we're all going to have to pay, and the younger generation is going to have to pay because the money does have to be paid back at some point. But here's the good news. We have record low interest rates, so we can borrow. And of course, interest rates and inflation could happen sometime, but I don't think anytime soon. So don't worry about the debt. Worry a bit about the deficit. Taxes are going to come soon, but only, I think, maybe in a year to 18 months' time. So you're OK for now. What do you think, what do you think of Keir Starmer... Um, This is another question from the audience. Do you think he's got what it takes to bring Labour back to the centre and, crucially, back to power? There's one good piece of news in Britain, and that is, finally, we have a serious opposition. We did not have a serious opposition under Jeremy Corbyn. He's a totally marginalised figure who has, has been wrong on almost every serious historical question over the last 30 years. I mean, of course, he was the leader. With Keir Starmer, we have a serious person somebody who actually does his homework, has clearly got Johnson, Boris Johnson on the run. He's done well in House of Commons uh, questioning. And I think he's going to rebuild the new Labour Party in the same way that Kinnock and Blair did in the late 80s. But he has a problem in how to get a majority. And in that respect, I think we have to watch what happens in Scotland because Scotland, the Scottish Labour Party, has collapsed. And it's going to be hard for for for. Um, Keir Starmer to get a majority if he doesn't have a, a clear majority. So he's probably going to have to find a majority with, in coalition, either with the SNP, which will demand independence, or with the Lib Dems. And then in a sign of just how global our audience is, René de Paula from Sao, pa- Sao Paulo writes, is it possible to restore public trust in journalism and science? Bolsonaro is an enemy of enlightenment and yet his popularity only increases. Well, and I'm not familiar with the latest results 
the polls on Bolsonaro. But I just want to say that I do have confidence in journalism. Uh, we haven't talked about one of the most important stories that we did in the last year of my editorship, which was the Wirecard scandal, which, you know, Germany's big fintech company was a fraud. And the reason I mention that is because it showed that facts matter. And I think with climate change, facts matter. The science, even if you don't believe all the worst things, you know that if it could be right, you need to take precautionary measures. So I think the good news regarding Brazil is that with Joe Biden in the White House, you're not going to have a climate change denier and you're going to have some pressure on Mr. Bolsonaro not to further deforestate the, the Amazon. So bon courage in uh, Brazil is my, is, is my um, message. We've got a question about social media, just that as it grows in importance, is the role of traditional media diminishing? And can we have a financial system that is more prone to panics as a result? Now, the problem with social media is it polarises. And I think there could be some serious work done on how it affects elections and campaigns. And, you know, you, it really does... It, you know, it fosters division. And it's interesting that the big tech giants like Twitter and Facebook have realised that they can't just have a free public square. We know that democracy, if you go back to the Greek politics, the theorists, you can have something like democracy, but that can be distorted to anarchy. And similarly, a monarchy can be distorted to a tyranny. This is really important to understand it, it's why some curbs, and it's better if they are self-restrictions, should occur on social media. Now, mainstream media is relatively, and that certainly applies to print, in decline. But it can still be a very important force because it can adapt. And that's the story of, in the book about the Financial Times and about how we went digital. And look at what we're doing now. We're, we, we'd never have been able to do this 10 years ago. So as long as mainstream media adapts and goes digital and plays in that space, it can compete with social media. So again, I'm a relative optimist, but I'm eyes wide open. And just as an adjunct to that question, you know, the rise of social media has also shown us the, the dangers and the rise of, of fake news and of disinformation, which is spreading so much faster than any fact checking can keep up with. Is that a danger to traditional media? How, how, does, how does traditional media counter it? Well, again, I, I think that you've got to put things in context and you've got to call people out who are spreading it. I, I think, by the way, fake news has been around for a very long time. I mean, you know, this is just rumours at one level or propaganda, state propaganda. I mean, you know, we've, we've had fake news from Orson Welles with the invasion of Mars. But I just want to say one other thing about, about social media. I back Tim Davey, the new director general, in actually imposing some rules on people in responsibility who are, you know, neutral, and I think they're great journalists, but they have to be careful. And I, again, I say this in, and I say this as a tweeter, by the way, um, 88,000 followers, but, you know, no contest, no contest <laughs> with most counting. of the people around here. But, you know, you've got to be careful. It's a really dangerous, it's a dangerous medium. And if you start sounding off, you are going to put yourself at risk if you are pretending to be, or at least claiming a degree of 
objectivity, balance and neutrality. So, you know, people do. I think Tim is right as the BBC Director General. I'll probably make myself unpopular saying that, but I'm going to say I support him. Well, talking of responsibility in journalism, um, we've got a question here about the aftermath of of the crisis of of 2007, 2008. There was an inquiry about the role of the press in precipitating it. You know, Robert Peston's great scoops, did they actually end up leading to a run on on Northern, Northern Rock? How can financial news, the question asks, avoid creating panics while still informing audiences? How do you do that? How do you balance it out? Well, first of all, I I was also in that hearing with Robert Peston, who, as usual, asked the first question. Not no no problem at in the House of Commons, and we were asked. You know, we, you were kind of you made it worse. You were responsible. No, we were not responsible for the crisis. These were flaws in regulation that, you know, enhanced and incentivized risk irresponsible risk taking. Now, in terms of our role. You know, the thing I did, I said, we're not going to have panic on the front page. There will be no, no word like panic. That's not right. We did it once in that week, once, when the system was literally melting down. But you have a responsibility to check the other side of the story, not go with the herd. And just on Northern Rock, you know, it was bust. It was going to be bust. Any time that this was, this came out or whatever the official said there would have been a run on the bank. So I don't blame Robert at all. He did his job. In terms of the great characters you've met, and gosh, there are a few. I mean, this book is amazing. You said earlier you're not a name dropper. You don't need to be. It's It's got some of the, the, the greats. Uh, you seem to have met them all. Somebody has written in asking, what do you make of President Macron? Well, I only met him briefly when I, I, I said, uh, where, uh, in the Elysee Palace, when... Mario Draghi was getting the Légion d'honneur and he introduced himself to everybody. And I said, si je peux me présenter, monsieur le président, he said, je vous connais bien. And it was, you know, if I could introduce myself, he said, I know who you are. And it was just, you know, Macron is... Was that a great moment? Yeah, well, you know, it was just, I was sort of, he's fairly small, by the way, but by that moment, I was definitely felt smaller than he did. Macron, I think, has been an extraordinary political force for trying to restore the centre in American politics. He create from a movement, he created a party. I think he's given a number of great speeches, importance defending liberal democracy. Perhaps sometimes somebody said to me, these should have been written by the chief of staff, not the president, because he's too much in, out in front. But by and large, I would give him credit. And I think also he's restored some of the relations between, you know, France and Germany, where France had been somewhat marginalised. And I think Hollande, frankly, was a poor president. So I give Macron some reasonably pretty high marks so far. In a a similar style question, we've got one asking, what do you make of Jacinda Ardern? What do you make of her style of leadership? Well, look, she's authentic. And that, you know, authentic is the big word. She communicates extremely well. She's disciplined. She's humane. She, you can see that, you know, she's not bludgeoning the electorate. She's got charm. She's a very effective performer. But also it's not, it's, she's got performance, but delivery. She's actually met her promises. And this is, by the way, something the present government could perhaps learn from Jacinda Ardern. Of course, everybody says, oh, it's a remote country. It's a small country. There's a tiny population. 
That's not the point. The point is she's made promises and she's kept them. And that's a certain discipline about leadership, which I think is very important and, and very impressive. And it's interesting you describe her as authentic because these days that label usually accompanies a populist leader. It's unusual to have somebody who's sort of a centrist, effectively, who still sort of seems to connect to people. Yeah, I, I, you know, you can't, you can't make it up. I mean, you either come across on camera as authentic or you don't. The camera finds you out. I mean, remember in 1960 with Richard Nixon... I say remember. I mean, obviously we weren't around, and I, I don't remember watching the thing. But but there is that famous camera shot of Nixon with his five o'clock shadow, slight bit of sweat in front of the TV scene, and he looks dodgy. And you can't take, you can't change that. And you know, Jacinda Ardern is is just comes across as authentic. I think, by the way, Rishi Sunak. He does come across as authentic. He's comfortable in his own skin. He's not, he's articulate, he's serious, he knows the facts. Uh, I think he's probably a bit premature in terms of him being tipped already as a successor to Prime Minister Johnson. I think that's dangerously premature. Uh, You don't want to be out there that soon. But in terms of him as a performer and as a serious kind of politician, you know, he's got something, no question. How do you rate him as a chancellor? I think he's had a, you know, I'm writing something about the Treasury, by the way, for Prospect magazine, a long piece. So um, there's another, there, there ends the commercial break. Um, <laughs> you know, so I've been thinking a bit about this and I think he had a glorious summer, which is now turning to uh, a winter of discontent. I think he's, he's now been beaten up a bit and he's got muscled a bit by Downing Street. And, you know, he turned on the spigots. They were very effective early out of the blocks with the furlough scheme. But I think now it's, it's really getting a little bit more difficult for him. But he's had, he's, look, he's, he's, a, he's a heavyweight. He counts in the cabinet, in a pretty unimpressive cabinet with a lot of several second raters and one or two third raters. Rishi Sunak, you know, he's gold standard and he's good. But he is going to have a tough next year or so, at least. Marcus has written in with a question which I've been wanting to ask you all night. But in your book, you describe a lot of amazing encounters and interviews with great people. Was there one that got away? Who would you have liked to have interviewed that you haven't had a chance to? Helmut Kohl. Oh, really? It was all ready. I was going to go down with uh, one of my colleagues, Fred Studeman, who is the analysis editor. And, you know, we were going to go down to southwest Germany and eat I spine this this calf brains, I think it is, I can't even remember what it is now, but this real horror dish, which Margaret Thatcher, you know, really, really objected to. And we were going to go in his favourite pub and I was going to interview the man, you know, one of the great German politicians, the man behind German unification, the man who was literally stabbed in the back by Angela Merkel. She was his protégé. And we were going to talk about Europe and being a statesman. And he had a fall and never really recovered. So he was the one that got, that got away. And I, I think there is, there was probably, well, Macron got away. Yeah, that was one. So, yeah, one or two, one or, one or two did. President Xi, but he's never going to be interviewed by anybody. We got offered a, an interview by fax, which I said no by to. Facts. Yeah, yeah. That's so delightfully old-fashioned. Well, that's the way it was. You know, you get the, you get the facts 
and you fill out the questions and we'll give you the answers by fax. The Wall Street Journal, by the way, went along with it. More, you know, shame on them, Jerry. (laughs) I love that you refused. We've got a question here asking, should Facebook and Google be forced to support journalism? Is there a realistic way to enforce that? And what form should that support take? No, I don't think they should be forced to do anything in terms of support of journalism. That won't work. You know, they, they, what they should do, I think, is, you know, you need to look at the terms of trade between, for example, Facebook and the news organisations. You know, essentially, they wanted to take the content, give you a bit of a check, but keep all the data on your subscribers. That's an unequal trade. That's why we didn't do it. I think they could seriously put some money into training journalism, uh, training journalists. And they could also think about what they might do to support local journalism, which I'm very concerned about. But you can't force them. We don't operate in that kind of society. And maybe they could be taxed a bit more effectively and then, you know, help our public services. But that's pretty difficult as well because you have footloose capital, free movement of capital and labour, you know, and intellectual property. It's very difficult. And what is the answer there? Because we are increasingly expecting them to do the job of journalism in terms of fact-checking and making sure that the things that they are sort of putting out on their platforms are accurate, by and large. I gave a speech in Oxford on, by the way, on fake news about three years ago, where, you know, fake news in the post-truth age. And I talked about, you know, the need for the publishers to become, sorry, the platforms to fess up and actually become more publishers. And they've kind of started doing that in terms of interventions. And I think that's right. A lot of people say, no, you can't do it. It's censorship. They need to take more responsibility for what's appearing on their platforms. I mean, we have to do that. And, and we've got to face all these, you know, difficulties, which we haven't talked about, but you know how hard it is, you know, on the libel law in this country. I mean, the, the odds are stacked against us. It's really difficult to do serious investigative journalism because you've got these battery of lawyers who are threatening you to, and threatening to hang you up by your boots or whatever um, every Saturday morning. We've got, we've got another question here asking, as an editor, do you look over your shoulder at the stories and achievements of your main competitors? No, I don't uh, look at, spend my time looking over my shoulder at anything. And I was very privileged in terms of, you know, the owners didn't second guess me. I was completely free based on performance. That's why I did my 14 plus years. One of the most disheartening things is for an editor to sit in news conference in the morning and go through all the stories that you missed. It's just completely self-defeating. People know what you do is the judicious intervention where you've read all the newspapers, you know what's going on, and you might have a word with the editor one-on-one. You know, you don't throw tantrums in public. I didn't do that. And if, if you get beaten consistently, and you can make it up, whether it's three, four times, you start moving people. And there are consequences. But you don't, you don't spend all your time. I always used to say, we focus on our knitting. We do what we want to do. And by the way, we're going to do some really brave, independent journalism. And that's what we're going to focus on. But did I feel occasionally, you know, what the Sunday Times did on Philip Green? Yeah. Did I 
Did I sweat about that? And did I feel sore about that? You bet. Because the story was in front of us and we didn't get it. You bet. But I didn't spend all my time looking over my shoulder. You mentioned Wirecard. What was your greatest achievement at the FT in terms of stories? Which are you most proud of? I, I think I was really proud of that because the, the pressure on us... I was very proud. I just want to say President's Club, where we exposed this appalling, privileged, elitist club in the Dorchester, you know, which did raise a lot of money for charity, but basically took advantage of young women. They were groped, manhandled, propositioned, you know, a black tie, men only dinner. And we exposed it. It's the only time I ever agreed to send a wonderful reporter, Madison Marriage, undercover to act as a hostess. And she witnessed it. And we blew the story sky high in it. You know, we took a lot of credit for it. But the real one was Wirecard because, you know, that was Germany's great Texas story. We'd been following it. Dan McCrum, the great reporter who led on that story for several years. And when we published the first story, which I'd edited personally because I'd taken a huge interest. I always like to take a big interest in every single big investigative story. And I personally edited it. And, you know, we named... The person who's now on the run, somewhere in Russia or Belarus, this Austrian. By the way, very strange that Wirecard, the great German success was run by two Austrians. I said that and um, had a few jokes in Germany as a result. But the the Wirecard, you know, they they immediately they put lawyers on us. They put the you know we were investigated by the regulators, a criminal complaint, and it cost us several hundred thousand pounds to defend ourselves throughout that period. And yet that first piece named Jan Marsalek and we were never sued for libel. There were, by the way, there were PR companies, I'm not going to name them, that were just in the swill getting loads of money off Wirecard. I mean, it was appalling. And it took two and a half years, 1919, 2020, no, one and a half years, well, four and a half years, but you know, for sustained reporting to bring that company down and expose a two billion pound fraud. And yeah, I felt good about it. And yeah, we did champagne, even under lockdown, (laughs) post lockdown, post lockdown. Just want to say. (laughs) Well, it's uh, that's a great achievement to to leave it on. I'm afraid we've completely run out of time. More's the pity. But thank you, Lionel, for, for, for treating us to, to some of those anecdotes. And thank you to everyone who's managed to tune in. And thank you to Intelligence Squared for hosting this event. Manveen, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and to the audience. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your interest. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. 
Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>